When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other day, I happened across one of those huge so-and-so's guide to classical music. And for the hell of it, I paged around to the only modern composers that I really know. And I saw that they were all pretty much panned as fads. Ages ago, when I first moved away from home and into my first apartment, Hans Zimmer's score for the movie The Thin Red Line played non-stop for weeks on a sort of Poor Man's Boombox, a uh, portable CD player with speakers meant to be hooked up to a gateway computer, instead plugged into the CD player. And that music still remains a kind of low, humming meditation that could be the background to any day. And in the same way, the last three songs from Thomas Newman's score for the movie The Shawshank Redemption are as moving and meaningful as any music I know. Now, none of this music is Beethoven or Bach, but like all great art, we only think to make those comparisons after the fact. During the experience, such classifications hardly matter. I still remember the sense of revelation back in high school that sometimes I was in the mood for Beethoven, other times for Rage Against the Machine, and that neither impulse canceled the other out. And I think it was even more meaningful that I discovered them at about the exact same time. Two very different ways of doing things, and both moved me. Um, all of this does make me wonder, because elsewhere I have pretended to write like an expert about poetry. Um, not just write, but speak in this podcast, like an expert about poetry. And in all that time, I have put down this or that kind of poem, or I've lamented how people quote pop music instead of Tennyson when in a moment of personal crisis. But now I ask, how would someone who pretends to be an expert about classical music feel about my affection for mu movie music? As so-and-so's guide shows, all of my preferences could probably be cut down pretty easily. But so what? We've all been taught to cling to our preferences and opinions with the stubbornness of a zealot, and we've convinced ourselves that other people's lives really are worse off by not knowing whatever it is that we love and derive meaning from. I personally can't imagine life without the slow movement from Beethoven's 15th string quartet, and I will never forget the night in October 2008 when my wife and I saw it performed live in a small auditorium at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. I can't tell how many private struggles that piece of music has helped me through, or how many memories of contentment and joy it also brings to mind. But for me, it's just worth remembering that before Beethoven composed it in 1825, and indeed ever since, Pretty much everyone who has ever lived 
has gotten along fine without ever hearing it. Philip Ziegler, in his book about life in London during World War II, quotes the poet Stephen Spender, who claimed that interest in the arts in the 1930s, quote, arose spontaneously and simply because people felt that music, the ballet, poetry, and painting, were concerned with a seriousness of living and dying with which they themselves had suddenly been confronted, end quote from Stephen Spender. But Philip Ziegler himself offers the necessary corrective by saying this, quote, it must be remembered that only a tiny proportion of Londoners care twopence about serious music, ballet, poetry, or painting. As Stephen Spender himself ruefully admitted, at his fire station in Cricklewood, the radio was switched off only if classical music was being played. And for me, it's also worth remembering that while I feel a kinship and a sympathy, a deep, abiding sympathy for somebody like Vincent van Gogh, the very materials that he used to paint and the time and space he was given to do it would simply not have existed without his brother Theo, who supported him financially. And it's worth remembering that Theo was only able to support his antisocial brother by being immensely social himself as an art dealer in Paris. Unable to hold down a job, Van Gogh's immense output and private revelations were only possible because of someone who was able to be more conventionally responsible than him, and who lived a life that Van Gogh would have abhorred. The older I get, these are the kinds of situations I find it most fruitful to think about. And this kind of insight leads quite easily into another, or it leads actually into a question. For while I'm the only member of my family who isn't a teacher, what it means to teach has always been on my mind. And so, imagine any opinions at all and answer this question. What is the best way to communicate that opinion, that belief? What is the best way to teach? Since we've all heard of the Sunday school teacher or the English professor who only made their students despise religion and books, I wonder how we can best communicate our passions or concerns to others in a way that will be illuminating and not alienating, that will be significant and not coercive. I always return to the words of the mythologist Joseph Campbell, who when asked why anyone should care about mythology, the study of which he had given his life, said the following, and this is from uh, The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers, and by this time uh, Campbell is just about or already is 80 years old. So consider this. Someone asks you why someone should be interested in a topic to which you have probably devoted, if we think of Campbell starting to read about this stuff when he was at age 10 or earlier, for 70 years. And listen to Campbell's wonderful reply here. Well, my first answer would be, well, John, live your life. It's a good life. You don't need this. Uh, I don't believe in um, being interested in subjects because they're said to be important and interesting. I believe in being caught by it somehow or other. 
Now, as much as Campbell loved mythology, there was no reason to be a missionary for it. And in the same way, nobody really needs to match my love of prehistoric cave art, religious history, Caravaggio or Beethoven or Van Gogh, the Hebrew Bible or Walt Whitman. But I also don't need what they love. I think of that remark of Stephen Spender's above where he had to assume that the people going through the blitz with him, the everyday Londoners, were just as interested in poetry as he was. And I'm happy that I don't think I ever slipped, slipped into that kind of mindset during COVID, believing that the things that I needed to get through that year, now going on to two years and more, uh, was what anybody else needed. And Tor uh, a line from a Tori Amos song comes to mind, but why do I need you to love me when you can't hold what I hold dear? And those lyrics appear in a great song, but the question that Tori Amos asks is more important and more ubiquitous than we might realize. How do any of us live with other people when we are all finding meaning in different things? The ability to not mistake our own passions as requirements meant for the rest of the world is an important one to cultivate then. And it starts with simply knowing where our own fault lines are. This doesn't mean relinquishing our passions. It doesn't mean denying that we have passions or trying to align them with somebody else's. So much as it is simply a matter of seeing that all of our passions are simply growing in our own private gardens. That wonderful mystic of the 19th century, Madame Helena Blavatsky, put it wonderfully. An earlier popularizer of Buddhism and Hinduism to the West, Blavatsky also helped inaugurate what we might now call New Age spirituality. And because she admired Eastern religions so much, it was easy for her to criticize missionary work in Asia that resulted in mass conversions to Christianity. But look at what she says about the Russian Orthodox Church that she was raised in. And this is a wonderful quotation here. Madame Blavatsky says this, People call me, and I must admit I call myself, a heathen. I simply can't listen to people talking about the wretched Hindus or Buddhists being converted to Anglican Phariseeism or to the Pope's Christianity. It simply gives me the shivers. But when I read about the spread of Russian Orthodoxy in Japan, my heart rejoices. I do not believe in any dogmas. I dislike every ritual. But my feelings toward our own church service are quite different. Probably it is in my blood. I certainly will always say, a thousand times rather Buddhism, a pure moral teaching, in perfect harmony with the teachings of Christ, than modern Catholicism or Protestantism. But with the faith of the Russian Church, I will not even compare Buddhism. I can't help it. And as an aside here, I'm, I'm struck, and I'll have to look at the, the footnotes to make sure of this, but I'm fairly certain that many of these uh, revealing quotations, including the one from Blavatsky, come either from 
private letters, Blavatsky's it was written in a letter to her sister, or in diaries or private conversations. I certainly didn't plan it that way, but it's striking that in a book that wants to promote a sense of privacy, uh, promote a sense of all of us finding our hidden life, either for the first time or all over again, that many of the most illuminating quotations I can find for that come from private communications. Blavatsky herself uh, would probably not have admitted any of this in public. And the lesson I take from what Blavatsky said is this. Try as we might, we are all living with ideas and preferences that we can't help. As long as we realize that others are too, and that what they can't get away from is different from what we can't get away from, we are on the right track. For myself, I'm almost certain that if I had become a Jew after being raised in a Protestant denomination, I would see little value in the minutiae of Jewish ritual. But since I came to Judaism after a childhood wrapped in Catholicism, wrapped in the smells and the bells, as they say, I cling to every tangible aspect of Jewish ritual that I can. I want to wear a kippah on my head. I want to wrap myself in a prayer shawl while praying. I want to know when to bow and when to stand. I want to know any gestures or movements that I can layer myself in. And someday I want to lay tefillin on my arm and forehead. I see no point in denying that this preference comes, in part, from my experience of an entirely different religion. I, too, can't help it. And of course, meaning isn't only found in art, culture, history, and religion. I've recorded nearly six hours of interviews with my mother about her childhood and upbringing in a Slovenian neighborhood of Cleveland. And at one point, I simply wanted to know what she as an individual was interested in. What books did she love? What music? What TV or movies? And for some reason, this image comes to mind. Um, it would have been the December or January of my sophomore or junior year. Our neighbors were out of town for the winter, and it was our job to uh, go and feed their cats. And I have the most intense memory of going into my neighbor's house, it's a fairly large house, and knowing that it was empty and feeling a bit spooked out by it, and uh, reading Shakespeare's Macbeth while I was there and uh, intoning that, those early speeches of the, of the three witches. And if you go back to the episode I did about the earliest bookstores that I know, You'll recall that uh, one of the most vivid memories I have of high school at all, which even for antisocial people is usually um, some kind of communal event, for me was leaving the Ashtabula Mall once again in winter and going to my car with a copy of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man in a Walden Books plastic bag and for a moment just turning around and looking at the mall on a Friday night while it was snowing and having that feeling that uh, 
sort of inward and hiding people sometimes do. I'm the only person who just left this mall with a copy of Invisible Man. And um, isn't that interesting? And isn't it beautiful in a way that we're all sort of doing our own thing? And maybe I should get to Applewood Restaurant and start reading the book. Those are the memories that I have um, from my adolescence. And so as the conversations with my mother went on, and she hardly mentioned any of these things, no TV, no books, no movies, um, and I kept trying to steer her back to them, I suddenly realized that she was answering my question perfectly in her own way. Books and TV and movies were things that had meant so much to me as a teenager, not to her. Rather, the things that came to her mind were gymnastics and the folk music of the late 1960s. But even more than this, there was just Slovenian, there was just Slovenian music and dancing and visiting with her cousins a few streets over. The author Teju Cole put it a similar way. When asked what books he was embarrassed to have not yet read, this was his response. There are many films to see, many friends to visit, many walks to take, many playlists to assemble, and many favorite books to reread. Life is too short for anxious scorekeeping. Also, excuse me, also my grandmother is illiterate and she's one of the best people I know. Reading is a deep personal consolation for me, but other things console too. And for writers out there who uh, would just like to see little bits of advice every week, that quotation from Teju Cole comes from, I think it's a, still a weekly thing in the New York Times review of books called By the Book, where they interview writers. And you can tell right away um, which ones are very serious and take themselves extremely seriously, and which ones, like Teju Cole, are really trying to uh, make it a human thing. And I would just wonder, uh, his sentence here, reading is a deep personal consolation for me, but other things console too. What would it mean if we said, religion is a deep personal consolation for me, but other things console too. Uh, history, um, being a teacher, uh, being a garbage man, uh, living in the woods, uh, reading this, reading that, not reading, choosing not to read, um, anything you can think of, running, exercising, walking in the woods. Uh, if we can just think of any preference at all, whatever it is, blank is a deep personal consolation for me, but other things console too. What a, a great lesson that would be to just fill an entire blackboard with preferences and realize that most of the people in the room would choose one and not any of the others, and isn't that just fine? And the lesson seems to be teach by not teaching, which would sounds to me like a Buddhist saying, a Zen Buddhist saying, teach by living. This, of course, has nothing to do with school or a degree, but the best school has always seemed to me to be less about learning than preparing someone 
for the real learning of actually living. The learning doesn't happen in the classroom. It happens with what you absorbed in the classroom and then take out to actually live with. Now this kind of teaching, the chance encounter that sets someone off into a new direction, almost invariably guarantees that we won't be around to see the fruits of our labor or hear a word of thanks from those that we didn't realize we taught. But this is a small price to pay in order to be able to see that X is a deep personal consolation, but other things console too. The greatest gift we can offer the future, it seems, is the example of our daily lives, how we are living in the present moment. It's not just a mindfulness cliche. How we live in the present moment is actually it. And if we can see that, and if we can see that it isn't all just about uh, joining the crowd in whatever is either commercially hip or, uh, what would you say, um, or protest hip or whatever it is, whatever is makes everyone happy or enrages everybody. If we can see that it isn't all just about those things, if we can sit back and look at ourselves and see how we live every moment of our lives, that would be something as well. All of these specifics of cultural, political, religious, or national identity, of course, in the end, as they say, uh, amount to trivia if they only make us merely distracted or angry or arrogant, merely closed off and emptied of empathy. Because all things ought to, all things ought to point to empathy, to an understanding of others, and an identification with them, which is very different from agreeing with them. And so whatever detracts from empathy poisons the past and the future, as well as the present, as the last 10 or 20 years have shown us. And that is not such a bad idea to teach either. I like to compare the world today with how people behaved during the Black Death in the mid-14th century, when at least a third of Europe's population died of the disease. One bishop summed up the general bewilderment by saying, it is not within the power of man to understand the divine plan. As if he hadn't written those very words, though, he continued by pretending to understand that divine plan perfectly. And I don't blame him. It's only natural to not want to allow the complete destruction that the Black Death had caused to pass by without an equally complete justification. And this is the rest of what he said. But it is to be feared that the most likely explanation is that human sensuality, that fire that blazed up as a result of Adam's sin, and which from adolescence onwards is an incitement to wrongdoing, has now plumbed the greater depths of evil, producing a multitude of sins which have provoked the divine anger by a just judgment to this revenge. And closer to our own time, 
after Germany invaded France in 1940. The French cleric Abbé Thelier de Pongeville had this to say, Why did God permit this frightful disaster? Let us fall to our knees. We have many faults to expiate. An official enterprise of dechristianization, which struck the vitality of our fatherland at its, at its very source. Too much blasphemy and not enough prayer. Too much immorality and not enough penitence. The forfeit had to be paid one day. And the hour has come to repent of our sins in our tears and our blood. Now, while it might be easy to laugh at both remarks, I do think that we are much closer to this mindset today than we might want to admit. Many of us cope with difficulty and ambiguity by imagining them as not being difficult or ambigu ambiguous at all, and technology has only multiplied this tendency exponentially. It's only made it that much more of a temptation, because so much of our lives actually can be known with near certainty. The ups and downs of the weather, the performance of our retirement plans and credit scores, how many calories we've consumed, and everything about us that is collected online, so that it's hard to believe that the rest of our lives can't be understood in the same way, or as completely. As it was put in a book illustrating the vast complexity of the opioid crisis, it is inconceivable to think that there are problems that don't have a technological solution. But as the historian Jacques Barzin put it, the mind is an impressionable organ rather than a recording instrument. In other words, the truth claims of cultural critics, pundits, professors, or theologians, just think of how many of them we hear every day, are simply not as solid or certain as the directions our phones give us from a restaurant to home. Individual or collective allegiance to certain authors, bands, painters, politicians, movies, or religions can never be used as the final hammer their authors or admirers or apologists desperately wish them to be. This needs to be said because, for many of us, the versions of religion or culture or politics that we experience on a daily basis largely assume that they can. Now, the best way for me to illustrate this is by showing how a misplaced sense of certainty can affect our approach to venerated books and ideas. The first involves that great work of Jewish Kabbalah, the Zohar, written in 13th century Spain by the scholar and mystic Moses de Leon. De Leon's tactic for seeking a larger audience for his massive and difficult work was a common one in the ancient and medieval world, and that is he did his best to pass it off as a much older work and many still believe it to be a product of second-century Palestine. Because of these and many other challenges, the Zohar is tough enough in its original Aramaic and Hebrew, let alone in translation. And this is why at least one reviewer on Amazon from back in 2006, to give you an idea again of how old bits and pieces of this book are, 
Uh, that is why at least one reviewer on Amazon did not see the point of translating the Zohar at all. And this is what the Amazon reviewer said. To be brief, reading the Zohar in English is like listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on a $10 clock radio. If you understand the significance of every letter and shape of the letter, which is part of the text, you realize how poor a translation would be. While I applaud the goal of making Kabbalah more accessible to people, I think the effort would be better spent with a great guide to Aramaic, maybe even a study course in Aramaic, so that people who are seriously interested can gain proficiency and read the original text. If you are not willing to gain proficiency in Aramaic, there is no point in studying the Zohar. And I'll just interject a story here, one that I have not found a place for uh, within the body of Notes from the Grid. And that is an anecdote from the end of Hermann Hesse's book, Steppenwolf. And from my memory, from my recollections of reading that book uh, years ago, he spends uh, the narrator, whose nickname you might say is Steppenwolf, um, spends a great deal of time railing against uh, technology, and one of the things he doesn't like are record players and the radio, because they ruin the immediate experience of seeing music played live. And towards the end of the book, he has a sort of revelation among his friends, who teach him that even if he hears Mozart through a, a gramophone, even if he hears Mozart through a uh, a bad um, radio transmission, you should be pretty happy that you're able to listen to Mozart, and you should not be looking for perfection in all of these things. And uh, that has always been something that I've loved. But uh, back to this now. So after the Zohar, don't don't bother uh, don't bother translating the Zohar, says the Amazon reviewer. A similar notion was conveyed by a critic of Alan Mandelbaum's translation of another great book to emerge in the Middle Ages, Dante's Divine Comedy, which was finished in 1321. Those recommending Mandelbaum's translation of Dante, this critic maintained, and this is from the New York Review of Books, the critic says uh, they had in mind the classroom situation where a monoglot students must be conned into believing that the tawdry paperback they're studying is really by Dante, or Sophocles, or whoever. A practice that plants a lie in their souls and is calculated to deaden whatever native sense of poetry, of language, they may possess." End quote. Now here, both the quote professional and quote non-professional critic have made identical claims that a real or genuine understanding of certain books can only be achieved under certain limited circumstances. Now, this is strange to me for two reasons. The first is that it is only through tawdry paperbacks, as he says, that many people ever encounter world literature of any kind. The Penguin Classics only began with a prose translation of Homer's Odyssey, after all. And no matter what your opinions are on the merits of translating poetry or ancient literature, aren't we better off with readers of an approximation of Homer or Dante or Sophocles 
rather than none at all. And second, and more to the point, rather than deadening my native sense of poetry, Mandelbaum's translation was my way into Dante nearly 30 years ago, and I haven't stopped reading Dante since in Mandelbaum's and many other translations. And while I understand that other translations are considered superior, since Mandelbaum's Dante is so powerfully bound up with a crucial period in my own life, it remains a favorite. I can't help it. Nearly all of the poetry and writing that has sustained me since then has also been experienced through translation, the Egyptian pyramid texts, the myths and prayers of Mesopotamia, the Hindu Rig Veda, the Greek tragedies, the Hebrew and Christian Bibles, the Norse and Celtic myths, the Finnish Kalevala. And since there are barriers well beyond language that will always keep me from a deeper understanding of many of these books, I never expected anything more than an imperfect understanding of them anyway. And further, whether people, whether either of the above critics likes it or not, most people who encounter either Dante or the Zohar, or any book older than a few hundred years, will probably only do so through translations, or through selections, or through abridgments, or just through anecdote, somebody telling them about this book that they read. This, this is how meaning actually lives, not in the academy. The academy is undoubtedly important, but that is not how meaning lives. Meaning lives haphazardly, imperfectly, but through it all, still alive. And no one's supposed authority or expertise can do anything to change this. I might say that such books like the Zohar and the Divine Comedy survive in ways that their authors could not have foreseen, but I don't think that you can create something like the Divine Comedy or the Zohar by assuming that you've created an edifice of words that is safely sealed away in a jar and that is only meant for a handful of people. Rather, the image is, the image is of releasing a waterfall. I may be biased uh, because I feel closer to Dante and Moses de Leon than I do to the critic, but I think it's a fairly good guess that both Dante and Moses de Leon could probably have guessed the many ways in which their vast works might live and live and live again. In the visual arts, this is made even more plain since before the advent of color photography and printing, hardly anyone anywhere ever encountered famous works of art except through reproductive engravings. And one of these apparently unfortunate individuals was the poet and artist William Blake, who nevertheless learned a great deal from Michelangelo and from Raphael, to name only two, and he felt an immense kinship with both of them, despite these limitations. Now it's interesting to see that there is no discomfort in India with how their own massive religious and literary epics are understood to live in this fluid way. And here is a long description of the many lives of one of those epic poems, the Ramayana. This is a long passage, but it is worth quoting in full just to get the, the full enthusiasm of it, of how the Ramayana is lived with in India. This is what the quotation says. 
A.K. Ramanujan asked a now celebrated question, how many Ramayanas, 300, 3,000, in order to draw attention to the fact that through South, Southeast, and East Asia, there have been multiple tellings and retellings of this particular narrative for two and a half thousand years or more, making it one of the best known, best loved, and most widely disseminated stories in the history of the world, although much of the West remains oblivious to it. Every one of these tellings or enactments has, to a greater or lesser extent, shaped the text to its own ends, often providing revisionist versions which run counter to the original author, Valmiki, and the norms of Brahmanical Dharma. Indeed, some tellings, such as those of the Jains, have been reformulations or reversals from the perspective of an entirely different religious tradition. The most widely disseminated and influential version in India is probably Tul Tulsidasa's 16th century Hindi retelling of Valmiki called the Rama Karitamana, which turned the story into a fully-fledged bhakti text and provided the basis for the extraordinarily popular Ramila reenactments. Other important versions include the 12th century Tamil version and the 15th century Sanskrit version. One of the most recent retellings was a sensationally popular, although for some scholars, controversial Indian television serialization in the late 1980s, and it was controversial because it threatened to homogenize and supersede all other versions. Now, I left all the Hindu uh, terminology there, bhakti, and Ramila and uh, everything else um, uh, unexplained there. The, just that paragraph, you could just take a whole day out a day or two to just uh, figure out what all of that truly means um, down on the ground. But it's astonishing. It's been around for two and a half thousand years, and the most influential version didn't appear until the 1500s. And the scholars were mad because a TV version would homogenize it. The scholars wanted it to be wide-ranging and, and, uh, and uncapturable, you might say. Now, back in England, Peter Ackroyd has written that English literature itself owes its existence in part to translation and creative adaptation, and that many of England's great greatest poets who did know Latin and Greek expended huge amounts of energy in translation, while those who knew little of either language have profited from that work. Just look at how Shakespeare used Thomas North's translations of Plutarch for his Greek and Roman plays. And Peter Ackroyd also makes the most obvious point that it is, a, it is a credit to English and American literature that we should be so moved by a translation, in this case, the King James Bible. So that while I would do very well to learn even one foreign language, Hebrew and Old English are the only two I've seriously attempted, the larger point to see is that the power of religion or art and the means of their strength rest in their ability to be experienced in more than one way, none of them final, and this to say nothing of the multiple interpretations they all give rise to.
people who encounter anything in translation, anecdote, piecemeal, in selections, they cannot be excluded from the party. There is something meaningful going on, even if it isn't what the professional scholar or intellectual would appreciate. Just look at authors like Dante. Look at how they live in the popular mind, mostly by anecdote. If you encounter Dante at all, it's usually in college and you only read the Inferno. That's the, that's the old cliché. But even his bit part in the movie Seven, where his poetry is skimmed and Gustave Doré's illustrations for it are shown, even there you get something. Something is communicated. Many of our cultural monuments only attain this state because they are so ubiquitous as to be almost offhand. They are always around to be caught by someone like lightning. And that lightning can happen anywhere, in any way, like me, watching the movie Seven around the age of 16 and getting Mandelbaum's Dante soon after. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.